When you know someone's story, it's easier to understand them, how they think, how they feel, uh, why they do what they do, why they say what they say. The closer we get to people, the likelier uh, we are to understand what they're trying to say. Marriages like this, quirky inside jokes with friends are like this, church membership is like this, lots of things are like this. Friendship clarifies communication. My college roommate and I uh, share an odd sense of humor sometimes, and uh, we, we kept a sheet of paper by the phone in our dorm room that we had different ways to answer the phone, and so it might have gone something like this, Tony's Pizza Shack, can I take your order? You know, we had fun with it, and uh, we, we at least thought it was humorous, and, and, you know, probably nobody else would have, but... We had some great lines. Uh, he sent me an email back in May that was uh, started off, hey, large individual. And then in parentheses, it said big guy. And so that, that's just the kind of guy that Matthew Strong is. Now, if you're not, uh, you're not really going to understand Matthew Strong and Jonathan Shirk if you don't know us a little bit and you don't understand our quirky sense of humor. But if you really know us, if, if you can uh, draw close to us a little bit, you might even laugh at a few things. See, friendship clarifies communication. Friendship clarifies communication. To really understand the book of Philippians, you have to befriend Paul, the author of it. What does the Bible say about Paul? We should be interested in that. The more you know about Paul, the more uh, his letters can come alive for you, can impact you, can, uh, can draw you in. And more importantly, the closer you are to God, the more sense Philippians is going to make for you. He will help you understand Philippians. Friendship clarifies communication. The letter begins, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Who was Timothy? Timothy was Paul's protege. Paul discipled him. He had a Jewish mom and a Greek dad. Timothy's mom and grandmother uh, taught him the sacred scriptures when he was a kid, and he grew up to be a pastor. People respected Timothy because of his Christian example and testimony. Uh, He and Paul were partners in ministry. In Philippians 2.22, Paul said, But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul and Timothy were close friends, and they were serving in gospel ministry together, uh, working to proclaim Christ Jesus to the world. Paul included Timothy's name in the salutation of several of his letters, including Philippians, as you can see, likely because they shared gospel ministry and because likely Timothy wrote the words of Paul. Dictate, Paul dictated to Timothy. Most of all, it's important to know that Timothy was a servant of Christ Jesus. Who was Paul? Paul was probably the greatest theologian that ever lived, second to only Jesus Christ. He wrote half the books of the New Testament, 13 books, and he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means God breathed out his authoritative word through Paul. Through Paul's writing, Paul wrote God's word. He was brilliant, and he deeply loved God, and he deeply loved Christ's church. His life was filled with suffering, and yet it, is, it was also filled with deep joy in God. Later in this series, in Philippians 3, Paul gives us a short bio. Uh, circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, persecutor of the church, and blameless under the law. In other words, Paul's pedigree was impeccable. This is a sharp guy. This, this guy had uh, some things on his resume. He was the cream of the crop in Judaism. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 7. Acts 7. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Turn to Acts 7. This is where we encounter Paul for the first time in Scripture. And I want to read for you Acts 7, verse 54 through Acts 8, verse 3. Stephen had just given a powerful sermon to a, a Jewish council. And let's just, let's just say it wasn't received too well. And uh, we're going to start in verse 54, Acts seven fifty-four. Now, when they heard these things, referring to Stephen's sermon... They were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Stephen was stoned to death for the gospel of Jesus Christ. No fair trial. No justice, just the victim of religious mob violence. Now look at Acts 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This heartless young man, Saul, was none other than Paul before his conversion, before his name changed. Paul had a ruthless past. It, it actually gratified him that Stephen the Christian was stoned to death. He devoted himself to ravage or to destroy the church. And back then, the church met in homes. And one scholar noted, quote, the community life, which found its strength in house meetings and spread its influence from that joyful and caring context, was now systematically dismantled. Saul is portrayed as one who breaks and enters, violently dragging the believers off to prison and securing the death of some, end of quote. It's simple. Paul was, was religious, a religious elitist, but he was so deceived. He didn't know God. He didn't know Christ. He was deceived in his religion. He thought that he was serving God when he didn't even know God. And then Jesus intervened and saved him. Jump to Acts 9. Verses 1 through 3 say this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, meaning Christians, 
men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. This guy was vigilant to search out the church to bring it down. Now, you can read the rest of the story on your own. But as Paul traveled to ravage the church more in Damascus, he encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ and was forever changed. His name was changed and Jesus actually commissioned him to go and to preach the gospel throughout the world. Acts 9, 15 through 16 is where Jesus told Ananias about Paul's commission. It says, go... For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Within just a short time of conversion, Paul was preaching Jesus, risking his life for Jesus, suffering for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, This is what the sovereign grace of God does to people. This is what the sovereign grace of God does to people. It doesn't merely save them and keep them out of hell or get them into heaven. It does so much more. God's grace saves people to send people. God's grace changes people on the inside so they will bear fruit for God and others on the outside. We see that in Paul. And when you see the dramatic change that the sovereign grace of God produced in Paul, you'll better understand his writing. You'll know where he's coming from. Keep all that in mind as we look at the city of Philippi for a moment. Philippi was located in modern-day northeastern Greece, just a, uh, uh, several miles from the coast of the Aegean Sea, which is beautiful. You should look up the Aegean Sea online. Philippi got... Its name from Alexander the Great's father, Philip II, who was king of Macedon. King Philip conquered the area around 356 BC and rebuilt the city, giving it its name. He fortified Philippi as a military stronghold and profited from the nearby gold mines. Philippi became famous in 42 BC after Brutus and Cassius, Julius Caesar's assassins, were conquered by Mark Antony and Octavian. That key victory opened the door for the rise of the Roman Empire under Octavian, also called Caesar Augustus. And you might recognize that name from Luke 2. Philippi then became a Roman colony in in which Roman war veterans resided. Citizens of Philippi enjoyed uh, many benefits, um, including tax exemption, land ownership, and the rule of Roman law. The culture and life of Philippi reflected that of Rome. Philippi was fertile. Uh, ground, just like uh, Lancaster County, similar in that way. The city contained a theater, uh, a large marketplace for business, shops, and two city gates. Various religious temples could be found in Philippi for Greek, Phrygian, and Egyptian gods, though the most prominent religion of the day was the imperial cult. Now, that's important to remember. People worshipped the emperor, Caesar, Grand altars and temples were dedicated to the emperor and to members of his family. And worshiping the emperor in the Roman Empire was a huge deal, not a small matter. It was big time because if you didn't worship the the emperor, it would be interpreted by Rome as an act to overthrow or undermine the Roman government. 
God took the gospel of Jesus Christ to this pagan city by the preaching ministry of Paul. Acts 16 summarizes the start of the Philippian church. The first convert was Lydia, a businesswoman who was a worshiper of God. She heard Paul preach Christ and she was converted and she and her household were baptized. Read Acts 6 sometime. It's a a wild story. Paul and Silas were eventually um, wrongfully beaten and tossed in jail. So their start in Philippi was obviously really rough at the beginning. Generally, they were not well received in Philippi, but God used their suffering and preaching to plant a church in Philippi. Amazingly, the jailer who kept watch over Paul and Silas ended up getting converted to Christ as well and was baptized along with his household. Eventually, Paul and Silas were released. The magistrates actually apologized to Paul and Silas and then told them, to leave because they found out that they were actually Roman citizens, which was a huge deal. Acts 16.40 says this, So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So this week, sometime, just spend some time meditating on Acts 16. Read it. It's a fantastic story. Paul, who once persecuted the church, now ended up planting a church in Philippi for the glory of God by proclaiming the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the power-infused news that saves people and transforms their lives. Many, Many people got saved in Philippi because Paul was focused, faithful, and fruitful in proclaiming the gospel. Now, all of that background you can bring to you, that biblical background, when you study the book of Philippians, and it's going to help you understand the book much better. If you don't know the backstory, Philippians uh, wouldn't be as weighty for you. You're not going to be drawn in quite as much, but if you know Paul, if, if you know the power of God's grace in his life, if you know about the launch of the church in Philippi, and what it took to establish that church, then I think Philippians is going to be more powerful in your life. Now, please get this point. With the Holy Spirit's help, you can study the Bible and understand it. Is that a newsflash? I think it probably is for some of you, sadly. You just have to put in the time to study it. There seems to be this this thought out there that I can't understand the Bible. I'm no pastor or scholar. I, I don't know what a half of it says. No, you can understand it. You just have to read it and trust the Holy Spirit to lead you. So this... Uh, the, the week before I preach the message, why don't you open your Bible and study the book of Philippians on your own? And, and your Bible probably has a really helpful thing where you can find little cross-references to go to other places in Scripture where you can study some of the backstory or links to some of, of these passages. Do the background work yourself and see what you can draw out of the text, and then bring that knowledge to a Sunday morning and compare and contrast with what you're learning. Test what I'm saying by God's word. This series will do way more to increase your gladness in God if you spend time studying the word on your own. It will do much more for you. Verse 1 is Paul's signature. He wrote the letter to the followers of Jesus at Philippi. Now, let me show you something interesting here. What do you notice when you look at the text? What do you notice in Philippians 1, verses 7, 13, 14, and 17? 
What do you notice? Paul wrote Philippians from prison. From prison. Scholars suggest that Paul wrote Philippians from jail in Ephesus, Rome, or Caesarea around the late 50s to early 60s. Most likely he wrote from Ephesus, uh, but, but perhaps Rome. In verse 13, Paul said, my imprisonment is for Christ. Don't miss that. Paul suffered in jail because of Jesus. And his writing, he was writing, an encouraging letter to his first church plant to build them up from jail. Just let that sink in. Jail was awful. Jail was awful. Death was possible. Imprisonment was shameful, yet Paul's focus was on the gospel and his brothers and sisters in Christ, the church. Philippians originates from suffering, and you have to know where it's coming from. And yet it displays the affection, the love, the support, and the spiritual care that Paul had for his fellow Christians. It's amazing. So not only does the content of Philippians encourage us, but the surrounding circumstances of the writing of Philippians encourages us. And the gospel, it shows us that Paul cared most about the gospel. It shows us that Paul cared most about his brothers and sisters' growth in Christ, their partnership in Christ. Paul was suffering, yet he was preoccupied with what? Gospel and the church. Now, you might be suffering right now, You might be really busy right now. Life is hectic for you right now. You may have young children which demand much of your time right now. Wherever you are right now in your life, I want you to think for a moment about your priorities. What is most important to you? I'm not sure we could even tell from the outside. I think you would know. You and God. What is most important to you? Like Paul, is your top priority the advance of the gospel in the world? Is that top for you? Or does something else come above the gospel's advance? And if you're a Christian this morning, I mean a true Christian, you have to realize that the advance of the gospel is the reason you're still here. That's why God hasn't taken your life yet or come back. Do you invest your time? Do you invest your energy? Do you invest your talents into the spiritual growth of your brothers and sisters in Christ? I think Philippians is going to rock your world. I think Philippians is going to challenge your priorities. It'll help you see what's really important in life. Paul's priorities were right. So why did Paul write to the Philippians? That's a good question. Many would call this letter a friendship letter because it's so warm, it's so affectionate, um, it has such a wonderful tone from a brother to his brothers and sisters in Christ. It was meant to be read to the entire church of Philippi, and it's filled with this joyful encouragement, this gladness, this rejoicing language. Some call this letter a deliberative rhetoric which means Paul wrote to persuade the church to live in a certain way in light of the gospel and to persuade them not to live in another way in light of the gospel. Paul had a few concerns with the Philippian church, but overall, his letter is much different than, say, Galatians or Corinthians. It's different in tone because its tone of Philippians is so affirming. 
so amiable, so friendly, so warm and affectionate. So this friendly and demonstrative letter is then very practical for you and me. It'll show us how to pursue greater joy in God. It'll show us how to be true friends and to really partner with one another to advance the gospel. It will challenge us to evaluate our priorities and to seek unity in our church, which we so desperately need. But the most important thing about Philippians, if you can keep this in mind, is the supremacy of Jesus Christ, God's Son. We must see the supremacy of God's beautiful Son. Philippians will show us that Jesus Christ is the surpassing worth of the universe and eternity, that nothing in in all of creation will compare to God's Son. It's going to show us beautiful things about Him, that Jesus is the greatest gain, that Jesus is what is to be most enjoyed now and forever. And that truth, my friends, can radically change your outlook on life. It can put you in a new direction. Why did Paul write this letter? Well, when you read it and you get into it, the major themes, the recurring themes of this book are going to tell you and clarify what it's all about. One main theme is joy. The Greek word kara means to experience joy or gladness, to be cheerful or happy. And it appears five times in Philippians. The Greek word kairo means to rejoice or be delighted or to be in a state of happiness, gladness. And it appears nine times in the book of Philippians. So joy and rejoicing and gladness, major themes in this book. Very short book. On top of that, the word gospel appears nine times and the phrase in Christ appears ten times. Joy and gospel, joy and union with Christ Huge central themes. They go hand in hand. So here's what I hope this series helps you to think through. Three things. The origin of true and lasting joy. Two, where true and lasting joy are found for you. Where do you go? Where do you get it? And three, how to get it. How to be happier than you've ever been before. Now, our church, we have a mission that is a wonderful mission to lead people to find their greatest, their highest, their utmost joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things to the glory and worship of God. And this series in Philippians is going to directly contribute to us accomplishing that vision, that mission that we believe God wants us to do here. It is going to point us to the joy of Jesus Christ, the joy in the gospel, the joy in God, joy in partnering together for gospel-centered ministry. And I want you just to think about this for a second. Everybody around you that you know, however you know them, wants to be happy. I would argue that even the people who are miserable people and they want you to know about it, what's, what's at the heart of that? They just want to be happy. I want you to feel miserable with me so that I can feel better about, you know what that is? That's trying to be happy in someone else's misery, all right? Everybody around you wants to be as happy as they possibly can, yet so few people have any idea how to be truly happy. They just don't know. 
Philippians tells people how to be happy in God. Who do you know that needs this message of Philippians? This message of joy. What might you do to get the message of Philippians into the hands and hearts of more people? You can invite people to church. You can pass my sermons, uh, the links uh, to people. You can share what you're learning from Philippians to coworkers, to friends, to family members. You should be talking about this. You should be blogging about this. You should be emailing about this. You should be Facebooking about this. Philippians has the power to make a lot more people joyful in God. So don't be shy. Don't be shy. Share what you know. Here's one last thing to consider before we quickly cover verses 1 and 2. And uh, that's all we're covering for today. So don't think, man, there's not a lot of time left. And he's going to go through the whole rest of the... 1 and 2. As you study this amazing little book, you'll find that its message is still relevant for us today. Its themes meet us right where we are. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony, and there are similarities between Rome and America. Philippi was part of a powerful, wealthy, and hedonistic empire steeped in emperor worship and pagan religion, and Paul's gospel preaching and teaching were completely countercultural. Now, look around you in the culture that you live. Pay attention. And I know Lancaster County can be a little weird compared to the rest of the world, but it's here too. Look around you. The gospel completely counters our culture. It goes against the grain. Even here in in Lancaster County. Even inside churches in Lancaster County, the gospel goes counter to what they're preaching and teaching. Think about the influence of all the false religions in America. Think about the influence of the religions of sports. Oh, I'm going there and sexuality, and commerce, and politics, and education, and science. America is overrun with pride. America is overrun with hedonism. The pursuit of pleasure without boundaries. Just give me what I want, and who are you to tell me I should not have that pleasure? That's America. That defines us. We worship celebrities. We worship athletes. We worship politicians. We worship even pastors. We think we are entitled to everything. America, I want you to hear this because I think it is so true. America is a really tough place to live as a real, true, Bible-believing Christian. If you take a stand for Scripture, go ahead, try it. Hopefully you are, and hopefully you're being persecuted in the sense of counting it joy. I shouldn't say that. I'm going to retract that, bar that from what you... Not hopefully you are persecuted. If you are persecuted, hopefully... You have joy in it because you're worthy. God has counted you worthy to suffer for Christ and truth. Why is it difficult in America to live as a true Bible-believing Christian? Because our pluralism, multiculturalism, hedonism, secularism, even biblically anemic evangelicalism, which oftentimes makes me sick, and all kinds of other isms woo us away from God. The American church is distracted by a million different little pleasures and deceptions that tug us and pull us away from God and away from God and his word and joy in God is at stake. We need the countercultural message of Philippians. Many people misunderstand this important point about the Bible and and because they misinterpret it, they, they miss a lot in the Bible. So 
Paul wrote Philippians. But Paul is not the preeminent author of Philippians. The Holy Spirit guided Paul to write the words of God. When we study Philippians, we study an eternally relevant message directly from an eternally relevant God. Now, if you're like, whoa, wait, Paul, the words of Jesus... I want you to study 2 Peter 1, verses 21. I want you to study 2 Peter uh, 3, verse 16. I want you to study 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And you're going to find in these passages that all of the Bible, all of Scripture is equally God's Word. Paul wrote a message straight from Jesus Christ. We can't pit a message of Paul against the message of Jesus because they are one unified message that come from one source, God. Jesus Christ authenticates every single word of Paul. Now, why is Philippians still relevant? Because it speaks to our human experience today and it's a message directly from an eternally relevant God to you. He's speaking Listen to what he has to say. Let me finish with a few important and quick observations from verses 1 and 2. Paul used the term servants of Christ Jesus to identify himself and Timothy. The Greek word is doulos, uh, which is better translated slave. Paul identified he and Timothy as slaves of Christ Jesus. And, And we have to be careful with that. We can't let our modern day conception of what slavery is seep in and allow that to taint how we interpret the term slaves of Christ Jesus in this ancient verse because slavery to Christ is different. Slavery to Christ is magnificent. As Christians, Paul and Timothy no longer belonged to sin but belonged exclusively to Christ. Jesus Christ had purchased them from the bondage of slavery by his blood to make them gods. By his blood, Jesus purchased them and he was their sole and loving master and commander. The way Paul and Timothy lived flowed directly from their identity as slaves of Christ. They lived to serve Christ in everything. No one else had any claim over their life whatsoever. For Paul and Timothy, who loved Christ, being a slave of Christ was not a negative thing. It was a gloriously positive thing, a defining thing, a motivating thing. Christ is supremely powerful, sovereign, glorious, and beautiful. And to belong to him, your maker, is your greatest glory and joy. There's nothing better than being a slave of Christ Jesus and having the king command your life for his glory. Nothing better. Paul used the title Christ Jesus to show that Jesus of Nazareth was the God-appointed Messiah and Savior. That he recognized that the risen Lord was also the chosen one of God, the one to which he owed all allegiance. And Paul wrote to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi. Now, the word saints is the word hagios, meaning holy ones, or people that were dedicated to God, set aside for God. And notice in that little bit, everyone who is in Christ Jesus is a saint. And these saints 
happened to be at Philippi, but there were other saints that were around the world. Now, you don't need a bishop's recommendation. You don't need to perform miracles. You don't need the Pope to give you a, a blessing for you to be a saint. Everyone who is united by, uh, to Christ by faith is a saint of God. The Bible is clear about that. There is no special category of saint. We are the saints of God, believers, And I think that we often forget that all believers are saints, which means all believers are united to Christ by grace through faith. That's what in Christ means. And therefore, all believers are considered holy by God. Think about that. You are considered holy by God. And all believers are set apart by God. And here's the kicker. They are set apart by God to live holy lives for the pleasure of God. God has separated you by His grace through his gift of faith, so that you would belong to him and therefore would live a holy life for him. We're going to see that in Philippians, especially chapter 2, verse 13. Paul mentioned overseers and deacons. Overseers is a a biblical synonym for elders, a group of qualified men given charge over a local um, church gathering of Christians to care for them, to teach them, to lead the people. And the plural overseers shows us that there's a plurality. It's not just one guy leading. It's a plurality of elders, of overseers. And Paul's use of the word with shows that it's not just about the leaders. It's about the unity of the entire body of Christ. Deacons are church officers as well, but they don't oversee. They care for the needs of the church. Overseers and deacons have different roles, but they work together to care for the body of Christ. So this passage is actually one of the passages among many that gives um, uh, authority to our leadership structure here at Jerusalem Church, uh, managed and governed by elders as well as deacons who assist the elders in carrying out various needs of the congregation. And so Paul was, for some reason, uh, zeroing in on the elders, but yet he was writing to everybody. Look at verse 2. We're almost there. Grace to you and peace. That was a common lead-in for Paul. And notice where grace and peace come from. Not just God, because Paul would have understood that in his old Pharisee days. Of course, that comes from God. But he added something. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father and the Son work beautifully together to give grace and peace to God's people. Grace is God's unmerited favor, his kindness, his goodness to us through Christ. Because Christ has died in our place, thus taking our sins upon himself on the cross and absorbing the wrath and the justice of God on our behalf, God can then be completely justified in giving us his kindness and goodness. That's because of Jesus that you receive God's kindness and his divine favor. Peace is this Old Testament idea of shalom, or the wholeness or wellness of being, of heart and soul and life. So we have peace with God through Christ. We have peace with each other through Christ. Dr. William Hendrickson called grace, quote, God's spontaneous, unmerited favor in action. His sovereign, freely bestowed, loving kindness in operation. And then Hendrickson said that we have peace because of the grace that God gives us. So, There is a lot of content in two very short verses. We're not even digging the depths of just his salutation. Um, And there's a lot here that can encourage you in your faith. So don't blow by it. Meditate on this this week. Now, I want to end with saying this. I hope that you are really disappointed right now. 
in the pleasures of the world. They're damning pleasures. And I hope you're really disappointed. And because if you are disappointed, and if your hope, if you, if, if, not hope, if you are open to being happier than you are right now, to experiencing a transcendent joy that is more than what you have in the pleasures of this world, if you are interested in a lasting joy, something that can be with you forever, then this sermon series is going to help you and has the potential to give you more joy in God than what you've ever experienced before. And that's my aim. I want God to be glorified through this sermon series, and I want you to have your greatest joy in God so that you have unparalleled happiness and pleasure in Him. That's my aim. I just want to preach it strongly and faithfully unto that end. And it can happen, my friends. We can grow happier in God if the Spirit of God so moves through His Word to produce that in us. It's going to get good, so you, you don't want to make this your last one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your precious word. We know that when Paul wrote, he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote the very words of Jesus Christ. He wrote the very words of you, the Father. And so, as we approach this book of Philippians, I pray that we approach it with anticipation, joyful anticipation that you will meet us there, that you will train us to be more joyful, that you will work in our heart to help us grow uh, just disenfranchised with the pleasures of the world, which cannot fill us, and that we would draw so close to you through this so that we can get the, the taste, the hit of real lasting joy, which is only found in your Son. Help us unto that end, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.